You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dundas. And joining me, as always, from MMA Junkie and USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, how you doing this week? I'm going to be honest, Chad. I'm a little worried about you. You're worried about me now? Yeah. You are concerned about me for what reason? Well, I rolled up to your house today, mm-hmm. and I noticed some graffiti out on the shed out back of your house. Yep, that's true. Some taggers got to us. Now look. The young people. I've seen marked for death. I know what that means. You think it's some kind of hobo code out there? I think the Jamaican gangs have put you on a hit list. No, I'm worried about you since that graffiti has been out there nigh upon two years and you just now noticed. Well, that tells us something about you, doesn't it? That there's been graffiti on your home for two years. I think it tells us something about both of us. I did not clean clean the graffiti off my shed, and you just don't even look around. Kind of uh, not very observant. Is this Chad Dundas letting the gangs win? Are you let? Are you just admitting that the gangs have taken control of your neighborhood, and you're not going to do a damn thing about it? Is that what this is? I mean, first of all, I don't necessarily know that that's gang graffiti. Second of all, Mark for Death has seen it. If there were gangs. I would probably opt for a policy of appeasement. Yes, sir. That's correct. Okay. Reach maybe like a detente kind of situation with the gangs? Until I snapped and then went into a Charles Bronson death wish yeah. type scenario. Angry old white man rage? Yep. Carrying around a long revolver. Okay. <laughs> All right. I feel like just what I've seen of your wardrobe, you're going to need to go shopping first in order to be able to match that. I feel like maybe a long leather coat is... Duster. Is uh, in need here. Leather duster. Probably yeah. buy one of those off a 1990s pro wrestler. Probably come pretty cheap these days. <laughs> okay, yeah. You know what? At least we got options, I guess. You let me know if you want to, uh, if you want some help cleaning up that graffiti, maybe show the neighborhood that uh, old man Dundas ain't done yet. You're telling me that maybe we can circumvent this whole Charles Bronson death wish scenario just by cleaning off the graffiti? I think, well, or we invite all hell to rain down upon us. But I, I picture a hilarious montage of us painting oh, yeah. painting over the graffiti yeah sort of like a uh, summer fun montage yeah Just all we need buddies out there two and a bonding. half minutes is all it'll take as long as we play the right music once again this episode of the cme is brought to you by our pals over at fulton and rourke spring is on the way and as you part with your winter gear and dig out your warmer weather clothes it's also a good time to update your fragrance as well as old man winter gets back to slumber and the guys at Fulton and Rourke recommend their solid cologne, Clearwater. Hmm, that sounds interesting. Ben, what can you tell us about Clearwater? I'm glad you asked, Chad. The Clearwater River runs along the Olympic Peninsula in Washington State. It is the main tributary of the Queets River and has a drainage basin of approximately 60... No, dummy, the river, not the river, the fragrance. Oh, that's right. I See, what I had done is I... Uh, anyway, the sporty fragrance Clearwater, which takes its name from the river, has notes of oak moss, clean citrus, and fresh water. Like all FNR solid colognes, it comes in a cast metal container that makes it perfect for travel, getting ready at the gym, or even tossing in your pocket before a night out so you can freshen up on the fly. That's more like it. 
If you're looking to up your grooming game, you may also want to try Fulton and Rourke's 2-in-1 shampoo and body wash. You know by now that that's formulated with rosemary, peppermint, and caffeine. The invigorating formula will turn your shower into a pick-me-up and leave your hair and skin looking their best. As always, you can use the coupon code CME for 15% off your total purchase over at FultonandRourke.com. So, Ben, we're going to get these hats in the mail this week, right? Sure we are. First week winner winners of hats are already out in the ether, floating around in the U.S. mails. Uh, I would hope some of them have arrived. Probably not the overseas shipping. but St- Still uh, on that steamship. Dom- yeah, that's right. Domestic. I, I think some of the hats have probably arrived. Uh, but we got a lot more hats to send out. But if you haven't received your white Pride FC hat yet, don't despair. Don't worry, we're going to get it to you in plenty of time so you can be out there looking sharp this summer at the club in your Pride FC hat. Poolside. That's right. Oh yeah, this is a perfect poolside hat. Keep the sun off your face. Maybe even one of those cool kids that can tilt it at a jaunty angle. I don't know. Not everyone can pull that off. Can you? Oh, are, are you a flat bill guy? You've been in the bill on your hat. Oh, I'm been in the bill. the kids, they, they like the flat bill. But uh, gentlemen such as you and I... Of a certain age. Yeah, I can't. I couldn't even stop myself. If I, if you give me a hat, the first thing I'm going to do is try to shape that bill. Absolutely. Got to get a nice arc in there, like my grandfather used to do. You probably get a baseball out and some rubber bands. Mm-hmm. Leave that we, thing overnight. Leave it overnight. Yeah. Perfect. That's how you do it. We got music this week from our guy, The Fifth Element, a music producer from Fort Worth, Texas. If you like what you hear on the show, you can check out more from him on Twitter at The Fifth Element or Facebook.com slash The Fifth Element, SoundCloud.com slash The Fifth Element official. Ben, what is unique about the spelling of The Fifth Element? Uh, there's an A. Where? Where, there, where there's normally an uh, E. In the the? That's right. As always, if you enjoy the co-main event podcast, you can do us a serious solid by rating, reviewing, or subscribing to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, whatever platform you listen to the show on. That stuff really does help us out. Uh, so lend us a hand if you got a few minutes and write us a positive review. Ben, uh, we got some big news about the Patreon. Yes, we do. Well, I don't know if we want to oversell it, but it's news. Okay, yeah. Let's not make it out to be too big a deal. That's right. Next week's show, just looking at the MMA calendar here, Probably going to be an ain't shit going on show because ain't shit going on. There ain't shit going on. Uh, and as is our, our, you know, policy from time to time, our practice here on the co-main event podcast, uh, those ain't shit going on shows are oftentimes all listener mail all the time. So we're planning to do that for next week's show, but this week with a twist. That's right. So if you are a Patreon subscriber and Looking here at the updated number count on our Patreon, 630 of you are. Unbelievable. That's right. Just unreal. That's edging up close to 650, Chad. Dangerously close to 650. But those of you who are Patreon subscribers, you will get a a special email address that you can email your question to for this All Questions Considered episode. And your questions will be considered first before anybody else's. So basically, you get first dibs on questions if, if we you're get, a Patreon of the CME podcast. If we get a bunch of good questions from the Patreon, we'll just roll with those. That's right. We're not afraid to do that. Yeah. Let everybody else gets left out in the cold. Also, I have it on good authority that some other future streaming events are in the offing very soon. Uh, so you might want to sign up, be a part of that. Uh, plus... If you sign up to be a patron of the Co-Main Event Podcast, we will just love you to the point where the chat will take a bullet for you. You look, you could see the determination in his eyes. Policy he, of appeasement, I said earlier. He won't do it. He won't let any harm come to you. Three rounds, as usual, this week in the Co-Main Event Podcast. In round number one, 
give Fabricio Verdum credit for single-handedly trying to bring back the can opener, but is there a fine line between being a KG veteran and just being disinterested? And in round number two, hey, have you heard that Liverpool's Darren Till is going to headlining UFC Liverpool on May 27th live and free from Liverpool? So that's a thing that's definitely going to happen in Liverpool. And in round number three, did Jan Blakovic versus Jimmy Manua signal the start of the fun fight era in the light heavyweight division, both for better and maybe for worse? All that plus, are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff? But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. The first piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Carl Kingsolver, which sounds suspiciously like a fake name. Hmm. Or maybe a character in a detective novel? That could also be. Uh, Barbara Kingsolver, I believe, is a noted author. There you go. Correct? Carl might might be her husband or son. Cousin, maybe. It's, it's a pretty rad name. Carl Kingsolver writes, Good news for Chad's full-time gig on the Francis Ngannou beat. Ouch, Carl. <laughs> Big nice. Franny is back. He reappeared on Twitter recently, and it looks like his sights are set on Ben's guy, Derek Lewis. It also seems like Mark Hunt wants to dance. Question one, who would you like to see Ngannou fight next? Question two, will the CME survive if it's Francis versus Black Beast? Now, come on. Th- that's the fight to make, right? Francis Ngannou versus Derek Lewis. Come on. That's just a good fucking time. If it's a heads-up contest between the Black Beast of Derek Lewis and Mark Hunt, I mean, you basically can't lose, right? No. First of all. Second of all, yeah, probably the funnest thing to do there is Francis Ngannou versus Derek Lewis uh, just because of the matchup of styles uh, and not to mention the pre-fight banter, which is probably going to be off the charts. Oh, yeah. Did you see this, though, Ben? Uh, just today, Francis Ngannou is out in the media. I saw the word implore used. He's imploring Brock Lesnar to return to the UFC, and he says, give me that fight. Really? I mean, that would be a fun one, too, right? And if you want bang for your buck, if you want to cash in at the box office, uh, you could do a lot worse than throwing big Francis Ngannou out there opposite the juggernaut Brock Lesnar. I guess so. If I were Francis Ngannou, however, and I just spent five rounds getting taken down and beat up by Stipe Miocic, I'm not sure, style-wise, Brock Lesnar is the fight I want. I mean, I guess I understand big name, big money, sure. But I think... You look over at Derek Lewis and you see somebody who we're also going to get excited about, but who you stand a much better chance of beating, right? Yeah, from a pure like matchup of styles perspective, Derek Lewis against Francis Ngannou is probably going to be more in Francis Ngannou's wheelhouse since we were left to assume that that Derek Lewis is going to go out there and, and throw them haymakers with uh, with Francis Ngannou and Brock Lesnar. Well, we know what he's going to do. Right. He's going to do... The thing, one of the things that Steve Miocic just did so well against Francis Ngannou in his last fight. If you're Francis Ngannou, maybe you're coming at it from uh, just thinking about the paycheck. Though. Sure, I understand that. But yeah, Brock Lesnar would just hide his cinder block of a head in between his two giant shoulders as he dives in there for takedown after takedown. And uh, I don't know if it would be that much fun to watch. And I also think at this point, uh, like right now is a good time to do Francis Ngannou versus Derek Lewis because no matter which way that one goes, you can work with it. You know, somebody's obviously going to win and somebody's going to lose there, but the loser, it's not like he's done or uh, people won't be interested in seeing him after that. And the winner could be right back in that conversation at the top of the heavyweight division, which, you know, you win one fight and you're a potential heavyweight title contender, so you never know what's happening there. 
Plus, I think you make that fight and you have it as the co-main event on an otherwise weak pay-per-view, maybe you really bolster things there and help yourself out. Uh, there's just no way to go wrong, I think, with that one. Well, I think the the fact is you you pick any of these three names out of the hat, you frankly can't go wrong with, with the next upcoming opponent for Francis Ngannou at this point. Like any one of the three is going to be fine with me. Derek Lewis is probably, you know, from a stylistic standpoint, uh, the most attractive to Francis Ngannou, but I'm, I'm not going to argue with any of these three guys. Like, you just take my money. I'll watch, I'll watch this fight. I'm watching Francis Ngannou's next fight, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, well, surprise. You are on the Francis Ngannou beat, according to Carl, Carl Kingsolver. Next question this week comes to us from Chris Rudiez. Hat winner, by the way. Oh, yeah? Chris Rudiez. He writes, Cain Velasquez was removed from the official UFC rankings this week. He's in a weird situation. He's still tied for the best record in the UFC for a heavyweight at 12-2 and two, and spent most of his career fighting and dominating the elite fighters at the time. On the other hand, he hasn't fought in 618 days and doesn't have a win over any currently ranked UFC heavyweight. How will he fit into the current heavyweight landscape when he comes back? If he never comes back, how should we think of his legacy? Uh, I can go ahead and answer the first question. He will fit in right at the top when he yeah. comes back. I would not anticipate both because of Cain Velasquez's uh, profile in the division and because of the much ballyhooed, much talked about lack of depth in the heavyweight division. I don't know that you're going to see Cain Velasquez take or get offered a, a like a tune-up fight. It seems like a dangerous way to go with Cain Velasquez especially. Uh, but I would expect Cain Velasquez comes back and fits right back into the to the upper echelon of the 265-pound division and, and, like, maybe has a number one contender fight. Depending on what's going on, man, it wouldn't surprise me he rolls back in and gets a title shot. Like, if everybody else is is nursing injuries or is unavailable, that's the kind of guy Cain Velasquez is, which I guess, if you can keep the guy healthy, which obviously has been the big uh, problem with Cain Velasquez up to this point, he's an awfully versatile guy for matchmakers in that heavyweight division. Kind of like Francis Ngannou, you you tell me Cain Velasquez is coming back, I'm going to watch that, almost almost no matter who he fights. Yeah. Also, though, we do have to take into account, like you say when you're planning, do you want to have him do some kind of tune-up fight or a number one contender fight or something? Because it feels like either way you're striking this tricky balance where if you give him a fight that's not exactly right at the top, something to ease him back into competition, you know he's not just going to end up injured and out for another two years. But then would he really want to jump back in and take one of those super tough fights against somebody at the very top of the division after being out for that long? Also, I have to take into account, Cain Velasquez is 35 years old. He turns 36 in July. People don't usually get more durable or you know, more resistant to injuries as they ease into the latter half of their 30s. Let me just tell you that from personal experience. You're not shaking it off any better the older you get into your 30s there especially. So it does seem like we're kind of nearing the point where we have to consider the possibility that we may never get the real Cain Velasquez back. The the Cain Velasquez we knew and loved back when he was just the heavyweight buzzsaw. Are you willing to accept that yet? Or do you still need to wait it out and find out 
is Cain Velasquez ever going to return to, to prime Cain Velasquez form? It's That's a difficult thing to accept, man. <laughs> I feel like I would still be in the camp of having to wait it out and seeing what Cain Velasquez has left in the tank if and when he does return to the octagon. I suppose that is as good a segue as any to the, the second half of this question here, which is, let's say Cain Velasquez never returns. How do we remember him in the annals of the heavyweight division? Uh, and that's a, a kind of a vexing question, at least to me, because you got a guy who started out his UFC career with so much hype, ended up beating Brock Lesnar at UFC 121 to win the heavyweight championship, you know, lost it to Junior Dos Santos, but became a, a two-time champ when he got the uh, the title back at UFC 155. But then you look at the last several years of, of Cain Velasquez's career, basically from 2012 on, and as everybody knows, his fight record goes Bigfoot Silva, Junior Dos oh, actually goes Junior Dos Santos, Bigfoot Silva, Junior Dos Santos, Bigfoot Silva, Junior Dos Santos. <laughs> and then he has the loss to Fabricio Verdum at UFC 188. And then he comes back and beats Travis Brown via first round TKO at UFC 200. Yeah, sea level Kane right there. That's right. You got sea level Kane, uh, much to the dismay of Travis Brown uh, and family. But uh, I don't know, Ben, what do you think? Like back in the day when he beat Brock Lesnar and he was 9-0, I think we all looked at Kane Velasquez and we, we thought of him as a shoe in to be the greatest heavyweight of all time. But then he ended up spending so much time going back and forth between JDS and Bigfoot Silva and, you know, at the same time sort of being waylaid by injury. If, if it was all said and done for Cain Velasquez right now, how would you view the guy's legacy? I think I would view it similarly to how we look at um, somebody like Bo Jackson, like not necessarily the two-sport standout kind of thing, although, yeah, wrestling and MMA, but uh, more like the man he... Could have done way more if he hadn't suffered an unfortunate injury that really limited him. Uh, and for Cain Velasquez, you know, it's not like one thing. Uh, Bo Jackson does have the thing that leads into the awesome myth of Bo Jackson, which is him basically tearing his own muscle by being too strong for his own good. But Cain Velasquez has just repeated, you know, this history of injuries and then a history of still trying to fight through them, trying to fight hurt when maybe he shouldn't have, and then taking the time, and it ended up being a long, long time. Like, I think that we will have to look back on it and think, we didn't get as much as we wanted out of Cain Velasquez, and we didn't see everything he had to give just because of the injuries. But I also wonder if we'll think of it in terms of a different, that he dominated a different era of the UFC heavyweight division. Because right now, I don't want to say the UFC heavyweight class seems better than it was when Cain Velasquez, you know, was beating up Brock Lesnar. But the guys who are better seem way better. You know, there's still, it's still like a, maybe even worse, like a kind of lack of well-spread out talent across the entire division. But the two or three dudes at the top, like when you look at guys like Stipe Miocic and you know Francis Ngannou and a lot of those people that are up there right now, it does seem like there is a a better class of elite heavyweight than maybe there was back then. Yeah, and I think that would be something that would be super interesting to see him come back. Uh, okay, here's some over under questions for you. How are you how you're going to rank the career of Cain Velasquez if it ended today? Better or worse than Brock Lesnar? Oh, better. Better or worse than Stipe Miocic? Worse. See, that was a trick question. Uh, better or <laughs> worse? Well, because Stipe Miocic is probably number one at this point. It's right? got to be number one. He's if got the record. If you're only considering UFC heavyweights, like that's why it was a trick question. Uh, who else is out there? Uh, Tim Sylvia. Big Tim. 
Better than Big Tim. Okay, so things aren't shaking out too bad for Cain Velasquez, even no. if he walked away today. But, I mean, I think that is what one thing that we would have to remember him at is, like, just feeling like we never got a a full enough picture of Cain Velasquez just because of the injuries and him being out for so long. And then even, like, these losses that he does have – there was always kind of something, and I don't know how much of that is fair, you know, to his opponents, whatever. What that quick knockout to Junior Dos Santos on the first like UFC on Fox thing, where the rumors were basically he was super hurt, but had to go through with it anyway because he can't pull out on the UFC's when you're the only fight on the UFC's debut broadcast on Fox, and then the Fabricio Verdum fight where he goes to Mexico City, figuring ah, I'll I'll figure out the whole elevation thing when I get there, it'll be fine, and then turns out maybe it's not. Uh, and, you know, it's always tricky trying to figure out how much weight to give to that stuff, but it does feel like if you wanted to, you could give him a break on a couple of those losses and then still look at this record and think, man, we had a, a really great heavyweight at a time when there weren't a lot of great heavyweights. And did we really just squander him, having him fight Junior Dos Santos and Bigfoot Silva over and over again? Better or worse than Junior Dos Santos? Better. Better or worse than Fabricio Verdum? Better. Better or worse than Randy Couture? Better. Okay, well, see, you're basically making a case that he's the second best UFC heavyweight right now. Well, I, I might stand behind that. Next question this week comes to us from Anders Limpar. Hmm. That seems like one we may want to Google. He writes, <laughs> this may be an absurd question, but we live in, a, in, a, in an absurd world and MMA is an absurd sport. Is there any chance that the UFC actually books a Floyd Mayweather versus CM Punk fight? Well, we do appreciate that question from Swedish professional soccer player Anders Limpar. See, he's former professional soccer player. He he's in deep now. Anders Limpar over there thinking about Mayweather versus Punk. How did we even get to this point, Ben? That we're sitting here on our mixed martial arts comedy podcast talking about Floyd Mayweather versus CM Punk. Where did this this discussion even come from? Is it just that CM Punk is the whipping boy? Like, you could throw out anybody to come into the octagon, and eventually somebody's going to say, I don't know, man, have him fight CM Punk. Yes. No, Tom that... Arnold versus CM Punk. Uh-huh. Kevin Book James it. versus CM Punk. That's, I was going to try to think of another hefty comedian, but maybe we got it covered. Okay. John Goodman <laughs> versus CM Punk. Well, John Goodman's not getting licensed. CM Punk versus a baby giraffe. Well, okay, we, we've been over that before. Yes, it's true that CM Punk has become just kind of a whipping boy and like the stand-in for proof that you don't need to belong to be in the UFC. Also, though, when I see this stuff, like these just recurring headlines about Floyd Mayweather fighting in the UFC and Floyd Mayweather versus CM Punk, Floyd Mayweather versus Conor McGregor in the UFC, uh, that's when I am forced to confront the very real possibility that uh, reality has split and that we are living in an alternate, dumber timeline. There's people who are living like in a real, an actual world right now, somewhere in an alternate universe, where you have to actually belong. You have to actually have the skills and prove that you belong in the UFC. Okay, is that the only thing different about this other universe? I think we there might there might be some different people in government. Okay, <laughs> at that universe, I don't know. Um, but yeah, this is where. We've, we kind of passed a point, I think, where we've entertained enough absurd notions that there's kind of nothing anymore that is too absurd to be possible. Even when you hear stuff like this and you're like, okay, that seems outlandish. It seems far-fetched. I would say it's unlikely, 
but you can't anymore just be like, there's no way. There's no way that will ever happen because who the hell knows at this point? Uh, well, Floyd Mayweather did tell TMZ this week that he's going to get his MMA license. Right. That sounds like the kind of thing that you just keep teasing out to keep your name in the headlines. It sure does. I will say this, though. Remember when Conor McGregor got his boxing license? Yes. And we were all like, oh, he's trying to get out of his UFC contract. He's going to try to use the Ali Act. Nope. Turned out he was going to fight Floyd Mayweather in a boxing match, a huge spectacle that summer in a fight that he somehow showed up in not in good enough shape to go 12 rounds, but still happened. It still happened. So we can't totally close the door on any of this at this point, much as it pains me to say it. You know, the one reason, Ben, that it would be worth it to book Floyd Mayweather versus CM Punk in the UFC. What? Just to watch Conor McGregor lose his fucking mind. Because what kind of a huge burn would it be on Conor McGregor by the UFC if Floyd Mayweather came to MMA and fought anyone else besides Conor McGregor? Yeah. I would want to be around the social medias just to see Conor McGregor fucking lose his mind. To me, the Floyd Mayweather versus CM Punk, the reason I would lose my mind so much is that it just at that point, you're basically doing like celebrity fights. You know, neither one of them is a for real top of the game MMA fighter. You know, you got a boxer who's going to try to cobble together some skills as best he can. And then you got uh, a pro wrestler who, as we already saw, not on the level with these guys. And you're going to throw them in together. It's like, you know, Evander Holyfield and Mitt Romney kind of shit. Or like when they would do like Danny Bonanducci versus some other like washed up celebrity kind of thing. Like, come on. If we're going to do the boxer in the UFC thing, it would just kind of kill me to not actually see him against a real MMA fighter. Because that's the appeal there is seeing like, how would he do? And if you put him in against somebody who is not a real MMA fighter, you don't get to answer that question. They book... Floyd Mayweather against anyone besides Conor McGregor. And Conor McGregor is going to come down to that arena and open the window and put a hose in the window and turn it on just to fucking flood the thing. The, so just so I understand, the window of the arena? He's going to cut the power to the arena. Okay. I think they probably have generators. I don't, have he, has he thought of that? I'm doing everything I can to not say call in a bomb threat right now. <laughs> Do you understand that? Because he's going to be that mad. <laughs> I'll be mad along with him if that fight gets booked. Next question this week comes to us from legendary labor leader Eugene Debs, founder, one of the founders of the Industrial Workers of the World. Huh. Uh, he writes to us from Beyond the Grave to say Dana White is in the UFC video game, and everybody seems annoyed by this, but let's look at this with a positive slant. At least there's finally somebody whose likeness is portrayed in the video game who is getting paid for it. Hey, oh! So you can see why. Eugene Debs would write us this question. Yeah. If you're going to come back from the grave with a question, it's got to be a good one. Discuss. Now, Ben, uh, you were fired up about this last week when you wrote (laughs) the uh, Breakfast of Champions. It seems like Dana White uh, getting slotted into the UFC video game with sky-high attributes and washboard abs kind of... uh, It tweaked you a little (laughs) bit. That's the only thing thing that bothers me about it. I understand the whole idea of putting him in the game and i thought like when i saw like the video where he was like all right people have asked for it now you get to punch me in the face go nuts and i thought okay he actually has like a good like sense of humor about it but then when i saw that he has a higher striking rating than daniel cormier that's when i have to be like okay this some bullshit because why not put him in the game with reasonable attributes for a 48 year old non-pro athlete non-pro fighter why not like 
I would be pissed off if I were any other UFC fighter. Like, I'm Vulcan Ozdemir. And they're like, nope, sorry, Vulcan. You can't have, like, a 99 wrestling rating because that's just inaccurate. Your wrestling uh, you have shown in the octagon is just not good enough to merit such a high rating. Meanwhile, Dana White is out here throwing hands at, like, uh, at a above Daniel Cormier kind of skill. That, and I don't know if you saw the, the video that uh, my colleague Mike Vaughn posted, uh, and he was like, you know, I fancy myself a, a pretty decent EA Sports UFC video game player, and he's out there with John Jones getting knocked out by Dana White. And it's just like, who made the decision to make Dana White super good in the video game? Was it the video game people, or was it Dana White? Because I think it would actually be fun if you put him in the game with like 40 ratings across the board, you know, or he's like... You know, hey, no, I hear he boxes, so we'll give him a we'll give him a forty three with striking. All right, maybe you're gonna you're saying maybe stamina, stamina the, maybe uh, is gonna be in the thirties. The but give him like realistic ratings, the way you give everybody else realistic ratings, and then then let people have some fun with it. I think that would be something people would actually enjoy. Well, if you gave him realistic rankings, there'd only be one guy he could fight, right? Is it CM Punk? It's CM Punk. <laughs> But honestly, watching, even in a video game, watching Dana White out there, clearly with Vulcan Ozdemir's body, and just Dana White's head just like, or, you know, or like Patrick Cummins' body, and Dana White's head is just like kind of smushed onto it, doesn't even, doesn't can't even make it look right in the video game. And he goes out there and he's knocking out John Jones with a body shot, and just like, all the crazy shit I've seen in video games, little Italian plumbers defeating monsters, you know, all that stuff, this is... This is the point where I have to say, can't suspend the disbelief. Can't go along with it. I bet that legitimately made John Jones mad if he saw it. It would make me mad if I were <laughs> any of these pro fighters. And you're like, okay, really? You're going to act like the 48-year-old, you know, usually tubby president is going to go out here and, and knock me out? Fuck you. Wow. Okay. That's a note to end on. That's going to do it for Listener Mail this week. If you have a question, a comment, a concern that you want to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. Go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can just sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss on all the days that we're not recording the podcast. Stuff always happens. News always breaks. Sometimes we do giveaways, man. So you never know what'll happen. The newsletter itself is short. It's informative. We would love to tell you it's funny. And if you don't like it, it's really easy to unsubscribe. As for right now, though, we are going to go ahead and get started with round number one. And things started out okay for Fabricio Verdum in the main event of UFC Fight Night 127 on Saturday from the O2 Arena. The O2. The, over there at the O2 in London. Uh, seemed like he was going to be able to handle this sort of high-risk, no-reward fight against Alexander Volkov uh, in fairly typical Fabricio Verdum fashion. And then things went on for a time. And maybe it seemed like, at least to me, 
Fabrizio Verdum ran out of ideas. Maybe it seemed like Alexander Volkov kind of realized that. Beginning of the fourth round, he wins by KO via punches. Rocketing himself now, we have to believe, uh, into the title picture at the heavyweight division. Where do you want to start with this one? I think maybe the most interesting discussion to have is about the 40-year-old Fabrizio Verdum uh, and, and what exactly is going on with him right now. Okay, here's the question for me to come out of this. Is this about Fabrizio Verdum and where he's at in his career, or is this about Alexander Volkov? Like, Did, did Alexander Volkov go out there and through a resourceful adjusting on the fly straight up beat one of the best heavyweights in the game or did Fabricio Verdum have one of those nights where you show up and you just don't have it quite anymore well I think it can be a uh, a confluence of both things right no like, choose you must choose Alexander Volkov ain't no slouch he's won six fights in a row now since losing back-to-back bouts in Bellator in 2015 uh, and his last three are now wins over Roy Nelson Stefan Strube and Fabricio Verdum so for a guy who was already the former Bellator heavyweight champion and M1 Global heavyweight champion? Don't forget that one. You're telling me he's he might he's trying to pull off the triple crown here. <laughs> That's right. Buying for the UFC heavyweight title. Like clearly Alexander Volkov uh, is a pretty good fighter and 29 years old, kind of right in his athletic wheelhouse. But I also think like at least to me, and and you can take this for what it's worth. It seemed to me like Fabricio Verdum, at least in this fight had about one idea for every phase of the game. He was like, okay, if I wind up on top and Volkov has me in his guard, I'm going to use the can opener because I'm Mirko Krokop's jiu-jitsu coach and it's 2002. And if I'm on bottom, I'm going to try some kind of half-assed barambolo. Whatever that is. And I'm going to use my single leg I mean, again you need... and again and again. And it's going to actually work. Like the, To me, that's... It was not only that Fabrizio Verdum is out here still doing, like, really basic stuff that people ought to be able to stop and that Volkov eventually seemed to figure out in some instances, but also, like, how much of it actually still works. And I don't know if it's just that it only works in heavyweight MMA, but, like, Fabrizio Verdum's favored takedown there, I don't want to call it lazy. Let's say it has a certain economy of motion. An advantageous single leg? <laughs> There's just not, it's not a whole lot like tricky about it. It's not requiring a whole lot of explosive athleticism. He's just kind of getting close to you and then just reaching down. And if he managed to make it work. A couple times. Yeah, that's several the thing. times like, early took, in the fight. He took Volkov down twice in the first round and then he may have taken him down uh, a time or two later in the fight, but it started to get to the point where Volkov was, was stuffing that takedown and, and, you know, getting out of it. It seemed like Volkov realized, okay, he's using that single leg a bunch. Uh, I will stop that and, and we'll see what, what he can transition to there. So uh, that was one of the things that made me wonder exactly where Fabricio Verdum's head at, head was at, or did he take Alexander Volkov lightly? It just seemed like he didn't have a plan B for any, any phases of the game. It seemed like, you know, he had one idea and one of those ideas was to start every round with a flying technique. And when those things didn't work, he just sort of like kept going back to the well, going back to the well, going back to the well. And finally, I mean, you saw Volkov hurt him in the first round with strikes. He bloodied him up. He's, he he caused his right eye to swell up. Finally, like Volkov has the kind of power that he just sort of got to Verdum uh, and, and ended the fight via knockout, which is a huge win for him. But it kind of makes me interested to see whatever is the next thing for Fabricio Verdum, because coming out of this fight, I can't tell like if he has lost a step or... 
uh, if he just came into this fight having not prepared the way maybe he should have because he maybe he took Alexander Volkov lightly. Well, it's always, I think, impossible to tell, especially with Fabrizio Verdum, because he is always so prone to just kind of screwing around at times. Like, he... Throughout his career, he's, you've seen that kind of tendency where, you know, he'll give away rounds that way. He's given away fights that way. And for a guy who has been at it for as long as he has and as much of a veteran of the game as he has, there are times when you think fight IQ must be the worst thing about Fabricio Verdum's game. Like, even as his skills have really rounded out and have gotten so much better, still it it's the things he decides to do in fights that are the weakest area for him. I mean, you saw it in that uh, that loss to Alistair Overeem, where you know it looked like he might come from behind. Uh, you see, you saw it in his loss to Stipe Miocic, where he just decided to go straight up running at the guy. I mean, you saw it even back in the Strike Force days. Remember when he had that fight with Alistair Overeem, where it was like, hey, you actually do have the kickboxing skills to stand here and deal with Alistair Overeem there, but instead he kept flopping to his guard and ended up losing the decision there. I mean, he he has a tendency to kind of like make those bad decisions and he's a, a skilled enough fighter that at times he can make those bad decisions right in the end he can he can screw around and still get it back and still win a fight uh i don't know maybe you hit 40 and you're up against 6 foot 7 alexander volkov and you can't do that anymore well, and there was a lot of smoking and joking in this fight, too, with Volkov. A little bit of smoking, a little bit of joking. A couple of guys true. who uh, had trained with each other previously. And then I will say also, towards the end of this thing, uh, Verdum was also just doing the thing where he just flops down on his back and, like, uh, invites the his opponent to meet him in his guard, which is, you know, speaking of fight IQ, you go down there and meet Fabrizio Verdum in his guard. I don't know that that's the great idea for anybody. And it just seems like... you just like, call Fedor Emelianenko an idiot? Is well, that I was what just going to say, it seemed like that worked in the Fedor fight. Like, Verdum maybe played possum a little bit, acted like he was more hurt than he actually was. Fedor followed him down, and, and Verdum ended up winning the fight. It seemed like that worked for him in that fight, and now he considers it like a valuable tool in his in his toolbox when uh, it kind of looks ridiculous in toward the end of this Volkov fight. Yeah, and he does not actually have a ton of different tools in there. And a lot of them, it's amazing that they are still, like, the way Fabrice Overdoom is just going to, like, point at the mat and then try to punch you in your face, that kind of stuff. It's amazing he's able to pull off as many of them as he is. But, you know, skill-wise, like, his jiu-jitsu is still really good. His stand-up game has gotten so much better. And you still see the potential, especially at heavyweight, for Fabrice Overdoom, if he were to pull it together, come in with a smart game plan and not... You know, give away opportunities to his opponents. I'm so I'm sure there are still a bunch of heavyweights he goes out there and he beats. Is this though? Is this the one that tells you at his age and at this point you lose this one, Alexander Volkov? Is that us saying like, all right, you'll never get back to a heavyweight title shot again? Well, this is definitely a loss that will make you go hmm, right? And then we'll have to see what he has in the next one, and maybe the one after that, and. You know, I don't know that I would have guessed this early on in his career, but at this point, Ben, it sure looks like Fabrizio Verdum is one of those dudes that will just take MMA fights until he's like 75 years old. Yep. Not surprised at all if that's what happens. What about Alexander Yevgenievich Volkov? It sounds like you're just reading a cast from a Chekhov play right there. How good do we think this dude is? Uh, this is a big win for him. Biggest win of his career. And uh, he's just a babe in that heavyweight division where everybody is about Fabricio Verdum's age. Uh, we talked a little bit before about 
the idea of a youth movement in the UFC and how excited we should be? Does it seem like Alexander Volkov now at, you know, less than 30 years old is the kind of guy uh, who could be part of that? He could be, although I think that there are a couple things standing in his way at heavyweight. I mean, for one, you know, he's a big heavyweight, but he doesn't have the overwhelming power that a lot of the other big heavyweights has. And also, if you're getting taken down that easily by Fabricio Verdum, I wonder how you do against some of the powerhouse wrestlers in the division. I just, stylistically, I guess I'm not convinced yet. Obviously, he's a good fighter, and his size and athleticism are going to be a problem for some people. But if we're talking about him in terms of uh, a, a title contender, I need to see more before I totally get on board with the, the Drago-Volkov train. I was just going to say... Does it strike you as incredibly lazy to just nickname a Russian fighter Drago? I mean, he's a big blonde guy, though, right? So Kind of. He has more of like a, part, like a, sandy, a side part like rather than like the hair. Ivan Drago flat top. All right. Well, times have changed. We can fix that, though. We'd go to a barber and we can fix that tomorrow if we, if we feel like you just he needs to get into character more. I'm just saying. It seems like Russian fighter, he punches, he's tall Drago. You and I both know you could do a whole hell of a lot worse. That's true. That's true. You could. You want to do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we will uh, move on to round number two. Sure. Ben, what's your Are You Fucking Kidding Me for this week? Well, I know, Chad, that uh, you were heartbroken to hear uh, before this fight that the uh, the fight with uh, Nasrat Hockprost was scrapped just before the event. I know that that, that, was a, that was a blow to you. That hit me right where it hurts. Yeah. Uh, and at the time we heard just scrapped before the event because doctor said he had some kind of like infectious eye condition and they weren't going to let him fight. And it seemed like, oh man, really? The guy has pink eye or something and you can't let him fight. He gets all the way this close before he finds out that's a real bummer. Then saw this on Twitter today where he's out there. Uh, he tweets just out of the doctor. It's not a pink eye. It's a dangerous infection, which can go up to my brain and the virus could infect the, could infect the brain back soon. Are you fucking kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me? That's just a virus that could infect the brain there in your eye. I guess you're lucky the doctors caught it. Jesus Christ, are you fucking kidding me? Yeah, if you want me to shut the fuck up about your medical condition, tell me that you have a virus that is could go into your brain. Yep. Because that's minding my own business after that. Yeah, yeah. Ben, you know that I loves me from some Dan Hardy and John Gooden on commentary over there across the pond for the UFC. How can you not? You know what the kind of a cool thing about the UFC is right now? They got several different broadcast teams that I feel like are giving us different looks. Yeah. You get a different thing from from these different broadcast teams that the UFC can put together right now. For instance, one is going to come out there and refer to sumptuous striking. That's, that's what I was just going to say. There was a couple <laughs> of times, especially during the Jan Blachowicz-Jimmy Manuel fight, in quick succession where I had to say to myself, are you fucking kidding me? Dan Hardy and John Gooden wouldn't get away with this if they didn't have those accents. Yes. And it was in that fight, not only where Jan Blakovitz bloodies Jimmy Manuel's nose with a punch, and Dan Hardy says, that's a lot of vino. That's right. About the blood coming that. out of the nose of Jimmy Manuel. And then immediately after that, John Gooden follows it up by saying, sumptuous striking by Jan Blakovitz. Uh-huh. Are you fucking kidding me? Man, you, you, you're John Anik. You can't get away with that. No, you, you can't get away with sumptuous striking. Nope. Wish you would try. You know who can get away with it? British dudes and Mauro Ronaldo. <laughs> Are you fucking kidding, <laughs> me? fucking kidding me? That's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two.
Chad, I would like to begin this round with a sentence that I am almost positive has never been spoken before until it was uttered by Darren Till at UFC Fight Night 127. Okay, I'm, I'm excited. It, it I'm goes excited like this. for this. When you hear those drums of Phil Collins, that's when you'll know I'm the fucking man. You, I bet someone said that in the 80s. No, in a there's club. no way anybody else used the someone. drums of Phil Collins as the like ominous, here I come, look out, you bastards kind of symbol. There's no, there's no way. No way anybody else was like, well, yeah, you, you're laughing now. Wait till you hear those drums of Phil Collins. Then you'll be scared as hell because you'll know I'm coming. Are you trying to tell me that the music of Phil Collins has not struck fear in hearts since Genesis split up? Hey, listen, man. I'm at the gym, and I hear over the speakers, you know, the hair stands on, the, on, my, on my forearm. You get fired up. But I don't start looking around for somebody to come in there and beat my ass. Yet. Until now, Darren now, Till. Now you're going to start looking around for Darren the Gorilla Till. Uh, t the Gorilla. Darren Till. Dar the Gorilla Darren. Stop it. Okay. Stop right now. Now, Darren Till shows up here uh, wearing a sweatshirt that looks like a ransom note. And he proceeds to just cut a killer promo for basically the city of Liverpool. Right. At one point it says, forget the T-Mobile Arena in Las Vegas. Forget Madison Square Garden. Okay. It's all about Liverpool. <laughs> okay, Darren Till. He also goes on to say how like everybody in the world knows about Liverpool and, and what kind of people they are. Uh, I don't. I don't know what the what are they supposed to be like in Liverpool. It's where the Beatles were from, right? Right. So there you go. I've exhausted my uh, Liverpoolian knowledge. I, I believe they're known for that distinctive accent that Darren Till has. They got a good soccer team, correct? Sure. Liverpool. All right. I'll take your word for it. And they're about to have the most famous arena on the the planet of Earth. Ben. Yeah. Uh, I'm. I gotta say, I'm impressed with the way Darren Till can get me to care about this fight. For which he does not even have an opponent booked yet. Is this a sign that Dar Darren Till is, is ready to become a capital G guy? I think there are numerous signs at work here that Darren Till has gotten a stamp of approval from the folks over there in Nevada. Uh, seems like he's kind of getting the, uh, well, in some ways, the uh, like the English Conor McGregor treatment here. Remember the thing that really got Conor McGregor over was they did that event in Dublin that he main evented and it sold out in negative six seconds or whatever it was. Uh, he gets a big victory, and then all of a sudden we all know who Conor McGregor is. Uh, I think it's sort of refreshing to see them try to do the same thing with, with Darren Till here, putting him in the – this thing is going to be on the television, right? This is a television card, Yes, think? I believe so. Uh, live from his hometown. I guess I have, I have two feelings about it. One, this seems like the right thing to do with a guy like Darren Till, a guy who, who it seems like sky's the limit at this point, so you might as well see what you can make out of the guy. And number two – Kind of makes it seem like some of this star building slash how to book a guy in the UFC is maybe not brain surgery. Like we always kind of talk about, we always okay. kind of talk about it like, oh, here comes WME IMG Endeavor and they're going to be, have all these smart ideas about how to get guys over and turn people into stars. Uh, maybe you should get a popular guy and just book him in his fucking hometown. Okay. That just seems like maybe that's what works. Well, it also helps that Darren Till can go out there. He can get you excited about it. He has that sort of charisma about him. Uh, he, you know, you just, you watch his fights and he's a big guy who can hurt people, especially that last fight against Donald Cerrone was a, a great moment for him. Uh, then he can also, like, he's not afraid to talk himself up and to 
to ask for that spotlight because he feels like he really wants to be there and you just you don't necessarily see that from everybody else so he does make it really really easy on you who do you want to see him fight in this one I was just going to ask you that because obviously he he comes into this thing undefeated, 16-0-1 with a, a slew of stoppages. He comes off that big win over Cerrone that you just talked about. But Cerrone is far and away the, the best guy that we've seen him fight so far uh, by leaps and bounds almost. And, it, you know, everybody wants a piece of Darren Till. Uh, you seem like you got numerous, numerous options here. A lot of people mentioning Col- Colby Covington. Uh, who's the guy on this card from Saturday that now says he wants – he wants a piece of Darren Till. Oh, uh, you're talking about Leon Edwards? Yep, that's the guy. Uh, I know we've we've talked about uh, the platinum one in the past, although at this point it seems like he's a little down in the dumps. Maybe, yeah. Maybe not the time to... Yeah, I don't know if everybody out there has been reading Mike Perry's Twitter, but it uh, seems like some, some times, going through some times. Although Mike Perry in a fur coat riding on top of one of those red double-decker buses works for me. Okay, but that, here's Maybe you where... film a... a uh, a tour of Liverpool with Mike Perry on top of one of those buses. Okay. And basically the whole thing is just whatever he has to say about the uh, sights and sounds of Liverpool. Because I bet, <laughs> I bet that'd be a there's, win. There's that'd no be a way win to, for everybody. There's no way to go wrong slash right with that. Uh, but here's what I will say. The booking is going to tell us something about what the UFC thinks it can do with Darren Till. Because I, I also saw him toss around the idea of Jorge Masvidal. Uh, I believe he very politely asked, like, Jorge Masvidal on Twitter, like, basically, if you're not busy, how about we have ourselves a fight in Liverpool? Darren Till asked for Jorge Masvidal? Yes. Darren, don't get ahead of yourself, buddy. This this Liverpool thing is one you want to win, for sure. Not saying he wouldn't beat game-bred Masvidal, but... But see... If you give give him Mike Perry here, that's what tells me at the UFC is thinking, like, all right, going all in on Darren Till. We're we're picking a fight where it seems like, you know, both guys are going to bring a lot of attention to it, but then Darren Till is probably going to win. That's what a Mike Perry uh, matchup would tell me there. But if they were to go somewhere like Masvidal, then it's like, all right, we're going to find out. We're going to find out what Darren Till has. And it could be a, a quick trip right up to the top if he manages to win it, or we could have everything brought back down to earth. And it's where I feel a little torn is because... The part of me that's like, hey, I like one thing I have liked in the, in the past about the UFC's matchmaking is its willingness to say, all right, we'll put you against the, you know, the best against the best kind of idea. We, you, we find out the truth one way or another eventually when you get two guys inside that cage. You can't run from the truth for very long. And then when they've done it the other way, like somebody like with Sage Northcutt, where they're clearly, they, they want him to succeed and they're looking around for people he can beat. It feels a little inauthentic, but then, we're also going to turn around and be like, hey, can't you see you have a potential star here? Don't you want to groom him and, and make him into somebody people care about? Why are you trying to ruin him uh, before he really gets off the ground? There's You could cr- criticize it from either direction, it seems. Yeah, and then like, you know, if you want to give Darren Till a test, then maybe Jorge Masvidal is exactly the right guy. If you want to throw Darren Till out there with somebody he's going to beat, then maybe the question is, who is the welterweight version of Diego Brandao? Yeah, see, that's the thing. As I was going to say, never forget that Conor McGregor went out there and fought Diego Brandao in that On big double notice, event. I believe, right? He was uh, Brandao filled in, yeah, right, for, for Cole the, Miller, I believe. And see, Cole Miller seemed like, okay, that one was going to be a little more of a test. You're going to throw him in there against a jiu-jitsu guy, a lanky, you know, big guy for the division who has a, a real submissions threat and then it ended up being Diego Brand down short notice anyway which you know and then when that works so well hey what's Dennis Seaver's phone number 
we're gonna we're grooming ourselves a potential champion here. I don't. I mean, if the USC clearly decides like, okay, Darren Till in Liverpool, we're gonna give him somebody he can beat up, and all the the people in Liverpool are gonna go nuts for it. You okay with that? Yeah, I guess at this point in my career, I've made peace with that <laughs> style of of matchmaking. Uh, and you know that anytime you throw like a a hometown party for for uh, the hometown fighter that's going to be an event that the mma gods circle in red ink on their calendar <laughs> just to see what they can get done there uh in years past you would you would be almost certainly asking for trouble but maybe now in the in the conor mcgregor era maybe we figured out how to do it with with slightly lower risk uh and it does seem like just because of the position that the company is in at this point just because of the position that the sport is in at this point uh, if, if for no other reason than some of us want, don't want to get laid off in the next couple of years, maybe we need a couple more Darren Tills out there. Maybe we need, uh, Darren Till to turn into the next Conor McGregor or whatever, uh, to the extent that he has that ability. But, uh, I don't know. I, I guess I used to be a real hard liner about, uh, trying to give guys competitive fights and stiff tests. And at this point, uh, I'm okay with a little manicuring, a little massage, so to speak. I would be remiss if I did not end this round talking about Darren Till by once again reading my favorite factoid from his Wikipedia page. Okay, what is it? As a surprise birthday gift to the mother of his child, he got a tattoo of her face on his upper arm. Yeah, that leaves a lot of gray area. I got a lot of questions. I love the exact vagueness of the wording there. It's just a lot. It invites you to consider so much more to this story. It sure does. The gorilla. Never get tired of it. Darren Till. It's going to be a great surprise when I get a tattoo of your face on my upper arm. <laughs> that you will be surprised. I will be very. I will have a lot, even more questions about that. <laughs> In any case, that's going to do it for round number two. We will be right back with round number three. The UFC light heavyweight division clearly still cannot tell which way is up, as evidenced by Saturday's co-main event fight between Jan Blakovitz and uh, Jimmy Manua, uh, which was a heck of a fight, a real crackerjack between the two 205-pounders that Jan Blakovitz ultimately wins by unanimous decision. Uh, not that we want to tie things too specifically to the UFC rankings, but you had the 11th ranked guy, Blakovitz, defeating the 4th ranked guy, Manua, Jimmy Manua, a guy who up until recently was sort of uh, advocating to get a title shot at 205 pounds, uh, now finds himself on the heels of back-to-back losses. And on top of that, we still don't know what will ultimately become of the former light heavyweight champion uh, and greatest 205-pound fighter in company history in John Jones. Uh, it seems like we are treading dangerously close perhaps we've already passed the line of demarcation between uh the ufc light heavyweight division being the glamour division of the of the business of the company to to now having sort of morphed into uh a glorified heavyweight division where uh we're not sure what's going to happen we don't know which way is up 
And it seems like we're doing this uh, just for the sort of guttural thrills. Yeah, well, it also seems like nobody really knows what's going on with the light heavyweight division. I think that you could see that with even the booking of this fight. I mean, it turned out really well. It turned out better than any of us had any right to expect, including the UFC, because there was nobody out there going, man, we need to see that Manawa Blockowitz fight again. When are they going to run that one back? Man, we need a rematch. I just don't feel like it's all been settled. And... Like, I bet there were a ton of people until the UFC went hard on this narrative of Jimmy Mano wants the, wants this fight back because he never, Blockowitz was the one guy he was not able to finish, uh, aside from the people who beat him. But, you know, if not for that narrative, I'm sure a ton of people, like, even hardcore fight fans, shit-eating wild men for the UFC and MMA would have been easily convinced that this was the first time they had ever fought. This is one of those rematches where it's not until you really look into it that you realize, oh, these guys fought already? And even Jimmy Manoa, before the fight, was just basically like, yeah, this was not really the fight I wanted. It doesn't make a lot of sense. But, you know, you're in London. You're going to have Jimmy Manoa fight on that card. He said everybody else I asked for was busy. So, hey, Jan Blockowitz, gonna, he, he picks up the phone, so there you go. You end up with this rematch. And then it ends up being a fun fight that Blockowitz wins, and you're like, Okay, now do we have to do a trilogy? Are we looking at a damn trilogy between Jimmy Manoa and Jan Blackowitz? Well, this thing was kind of like a home and home in college sports because uh, the first one was over there in Krakow, Poland. Krakow. This one's in London. Where would you do the third one? Could you find the exact middle, the exact midpoint between Krakow and London and do it there? Or, I mean, I've, I heard Vegas tossed around as neutral ground. Neutral site, I guess. Or Uber, Uberlandia, a yeah, historical man. neutral site. Take it down there to Uberlandia, where all the big-time trilogy fights are concluded. But it seems like neither one of them seemed terribly enthusiastic about the idea of a trilogy after this. Uh, and, but it also feels like the light heavyweight division is in such a period right now where it's just like, if it had any good ideas, it never would have done this fight to begin with. You got the best fighter in the division not eligible to compete right now, awaiting his final punishment. Uh, you got the champion headed up to another division. Everybody else feels like they're just kind of hanging around, waiting to see how stuff is going to shake out here. Which, And when you think about it, that the light heavyweight used to be the glamour division. It was the Chuck Liddell, Tito Ortiz, Randy Couture division. And to see it come to this now, where it's like, all right, you know, Volkanoz Demir, Glover Teixeira, Jimmy Manoa. The bricklayer, Alir Latifi, everybody kind of standing around staring at each other going, uh, what next? It is kind of a sad state of affairs. The greatest of all time went to the California State Athletic Commission, Ben, and confessed some shit that wasn't even on the docket. <laughs> Did we even talk about that on the podcast? Um, we, we must have, but I have this weird feeling like we didn't even discuss John Jones going to the CSAC uh, and admitting to things that like we, that we hadn't been called there to discuss. That's right. Which is how you know when it goes really bad for you. Yeah. When when they get you in the interrogation room with the light in your face and you start confessing to shit that you did when you were a kid. They didn't like they didn't even know about that, but you're gonna go ahead and confess to that anyway. Yeah. Well. Well, the thing about the trilogy fight, you mentioned that neither Blockovitz nor Manua seems all that enthusiastic about it. 
And like maybe just on the heels of this fight that looked like it probably physically hurt a lot, I could understand them sort of being like, yeah, I don't know about signing up for round three of that one. But at the same time, I do think you make a good point. And that is if I was either of these guys and I had something that people were interested in right now, like people might actually be interested in a third fight between Manuel and Blakovic, I'd be like, where do I sign the contract? Let's do this shit. My question is, would they still be interested three or four months from now? Or how, you know, might take you longer if you got to heal and get ready for another fight between that one. I mean, I will mean, anybody both, even remember it in three both, months? Both as interested as they can be in any minor happening in the UFC right now and as interested as anyone would be uh, regarding a mid-level light heavyweight fight at this point. Like, Jimmy Manuel versus uh, Jan Blakovic 3 is probably as interesting as, as you know, what, what we're going to do next with Mirsha Sirkunov. Right? Yeah. 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 No, you're right that it's not like it's any less compelling than any of the other stuff you can look at once you get past the top two or three in the division. Right. You got a lot of Misha Sirkinovs and Alir Latifis hanging around right now. Not not too many Daniel Cormier's and John Joneses. Do you think that a lot of this is just the symptom of the indecision and the, the just the doubt hanging over the division right now? Because who knows what's gonna happen with Daniel Cormier? He goes up there to fight Stipe. He's already Talked about like how he has a retirement date in mind. You know, if he wins that fight against Stipe, shit, is, is Daniel Cormier just hanging around as the heavyweight champion now and you never see him again and everybody else has to get on with their lives at light heavyweight? And then with John Jones, you know, if he goes in front of USADA and gets a like four year suspension, does the malaise just settle over? Like, it, are people then at least glad to have some closure on it? Like they look at around at each other in the top 15 where it goes through, you know, from Alexander Gustafson to Jordan Johnson. And they're just going, well, shit. All right. This is, you know, like a, like a bad arranged marriage where you're like, this isn't what either one of us would have chosen, but here we are. Yeah. Let's make the best of it. It does feel like we are a world away from Chuck Liddell and Randy Couture carrying the sport with their three fight series. Uh, and, you know, I think you're right. It, it's because of a lot of different stuff. Not only are we like just judging the sport differently, judging the health of these divisions differently than we ever did back in those days, uh, because I don't even know that there was ever a concern about, oh, the light heavyweight division isn't that deep when Randy Couture and and, uh, and Chuck Liddell were out there doing it. I mean, Christ, they let they let Chuck Liddell go on a middleweight ass whipping tour when he was the uh, when he was the light heavyweight champion. So I just think that we thought about it differently. And then you get into uh, the mess that John Jones has made of, of his uh, career, which, like Cain Velasquez, was at one time seemingly a given that he was going to end, end up being the greatest of all time. And, and is probably already the greatest light heavyweight of all time, arguably the greatest MMA fighter of all time, but really has, has uh, brought this feeling of, uh, man, imagine what he could have done if he had not been waylaid by all of these personal issues, especially if he gets hammered with a, uh, a four year suspension from USADA, which like I said before, when you go to the California state athletic commission and just start, uh, confessing to additional shit, I don't necessarily know that that gives you a great opportunity to get off scot free, uh, from USADA, but we'll have to wait and see. So it just seems like a confluence of factors and, and, you know, above and beyond just worrying about the division differently getting outside of this John Jones thing, uh, like clearly the light heavyweight division has to catch a different caliber of athletes today. Like if you've, if Chuck Liddell and Randy Couture were young guns in the UFC right now, I don't know that either of those guys would be light heavyweights. Maybe they would, but it just like to compete at light heavyweight today, you got to be a big dude. And there just aren't a ton of those floating around anymore. You know, you basically have to be a glorified, a glorified heavyweight 
which uh, thins the herd in and of itself. Do you think that maybe the situation is so desperate now that if USADA does basically give John Jones a slap on the wrist, even those of us who are like, that seems like bullshit and like a way you would not treat him if he were anybody else, uh, does the relief at seeing John Jones come back to save us all at light heavyweight overpower any sense of like this is some semi-corrupt bullshit? Well, it would obviously be great for the division to get him back, but if they do give him a slap on the wrist, don't you think the relief uh, in your own mind brain is just immediately followed by suspense and dread? For the next thing? Yeah, exactly. Because he's like, not learning anything Right, if that. they're like, yeah. oh, well, you, despite the fact that you, that your manager forged your name on these USADA things and you can't explain how you got this uh, steroid that sounds exactly like the kind of steroid that a guy who wanted to do a lot of strength training without adding any weight would want to take, uh, you know, despite all that, we'll just let you go back. You would immediately be like, oh, God, now what? <laughs> what will be the next thing to disrail, derail John Jones' career? Motorcycle straight through the plate glass window of a Bentley dealership. That's See? It sounds plausible. Uh, and also, good a time plausible. as any to mention, you know what happened seven years ago today? Is this an MMA junkie uh, history minute? Yes, it getting is. A, getting a history flashback here? What, what happened? John Jones defeats Shogun Hua via third round TKO to become the youngest champion in UFC history. Seven years ago. That's right. We are just old bastards at this point. Just and decrepit old men. Shogun Hua looked like a decrepit old bastard at the time he took that ass whooping. Know how old he was? God, he must have been like 19. 29. 29 years old. Jesus Christ. Anyway, let's do uh, Just Saying Stuff, Ben, and then we will get out of here for this week. Uh, Ben, I'm going to do my Just Saying Stuff since it is light heavyweight division related. You know, they've been talking about Luke Rockhold going up there to 205, and he's been trying to pick fights, one of which happened to be with Alexander Gustafson. Gustafson replied by calling Luke Rockhold, quote-unquote, chinny at this point. And here's what Alexander Gustafson had to say about it on the MMA Hour, I believe, this week. He said, first of all, He's a good fighter, but he was saying a lot that it's easier to fight at 205 and just a lot of stuff. It feels like to him, he was going up in weight just to have an easier fight, more or less. And I told him that's not the case. And here I am. So basically, he was the one who started all of this. And I just followed up on it. I just go by facts, says Gustafson. So this week, I'm just saying is I just go by facts. The new Alistair Overeem allow me to correct you on a fact. I'm just saying. I just go by facts. You just go by facts. Who who can dispute that? No one. Who you can tell you facts. you're wrong to just go by facts? I just go by facts, Ben. There's graffiti on your shed out there. I'm just going by a fact, Chad. The gangs have taken over. Uh, Chad, this week, my just saying stuff, I saw, because since I follow him on Twitter, that Nick Newell, who is continuing to push to get signed to the UFC, uh, has himself now a new manager who has a lot of people in the UFC, Ali Abdelaziz. A somewhat troubled figure in uh, mixed martial arts. I'm just saying, if this ends with Nick Newell getting a sponsorship from a Chechen warlord, I fucking quit. Nick Newell is one of the the few things he can still just feel really good about his story in MMA. And if it ends up with him taking money from Ramzan Kadyrov, as Ali Abdelaziz loves for his guys to do, and then we have to confront the fact that Nick Newell is now complicit in some sort of ongoing Chechen bloodletting, I give up on the spot. Just saying. Just go by facts, man. Just going by a fact. Just saying. Well, that's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. We will be back next week 
probably for an all things, all questions considered, ain't shit going on episode. So uh, if you are a giver to the Patreon, we're going to send you a message. That's you, right. could, you could also become a giver to the Patreon. We'll send you a message with the uh, with the instructions how to get your question to the front of the line. And if you haven't given to the Patreon, now would be a great time. Right, Ben? Patreon.com slash co-main event. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. You're not taking money from Kadirov, are you? You'd See, tell me, right? What now? You'd tell me. Who? What makes you think that? You're acting weird about it. Is it the solid gold Bentley? See, now you're admitting to stuff I wasn't even asking about. <laughs> it could happen to you. I just can't explain how this thing that sounds exactly like something I would want to take turned up in my system. It's the strangest thing. Now I understand what happened.